chapter 8, verse 4, there's two other generals, Zeba and Zalmunna. See, if you're, if you're looking for names for like your children or your, <laughs> or your children are looking for good grandchildren names, like here you go. Zeba and Zalmunna and Zalmunna, that can go both ways. That could be a girl's name. It just feels like it. Like Frank Zappa's kids. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 4. Now Gideon and his 300 men had crossed over the Jordan River, and even though they were exhausted, they were still chasing the Midianites. He said to the men of Sakoth, Give some loaves of bread to the men who are following me, because they are exhausted. I am chasing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sakoth said, You have not overcome Zeba and Zalmunna yet. So why should we give bread to you and your army? So he crosses over the Jordan River, still chasing down these last two generals. And he comes to a city by the name of Sakath, which is up here. Sakath is an Israelite town. And they are hungry, they are thirsty, they are exhausted. And they come to an Israelite town, they are brothers in the nation, and they ask for bread and water. And the Israelite town's response is, No. We're not going to help you. I mean, if you go out and get the heads of Zeb and Zalmunna and bring them back and prove that you killed them, then we'll help you. Now, most likely what they're fearing is, if we, you're the rebellion. And if we side with the rebellion and you fail, and then Zeb and Zalmunna find out about that, then there's backlash. And we're going to feel the brunt of their sword. And we're not equipped for that. So their, their, their fear is totally understandable. I think we've seen enough movies and enough historical records and that kind of stuff to know that that's a very real reality. A lot of people are scared to help the rebellion when they know if the rebellion fails, there's going to be backlash. So their fear is totally valid, totally understandable. However, one of the greatest things that God has called the Israelites to is hospitality and taking care of people in need. They are wrong in this. Despite their fear, they are not trusting God. They don't see what God is doing here. And they refuse to offer bread and food and rest to their own brothers and the nation. And so they're wrong. So where before we saw Simeon and Judah and their camaraderie in the beginning of the book fighting the enemy together. And we now see the camaraderie is kind of broken down with Ephraim and Gideon. But he's flattering them so it's kind of there. Now we see here there's no camaraderie. They're, they're more afraid than they are willing to be united. And so we're seeing uni unity broken down. So they're definitely in the wrong here. However, does Gideon have appropriate response? Gideon said, Since you will not help, after Yahweh's hands, Zeba and Zalmunna, after Yahweh hands Zeba and Zalmunna over to me, I will thresh your skin with the desert thorns and briars. What he says is, I'm going to get desert thorns, and we're talking about like nine inch, six to nine inch long thorns, and I'm just going to take a whole big giant like bushel of them, and I'm just going to thresh your back. Now remember, threshing is the idea of taking a pitchfork and beating and stabbing and throwing grain. So we're not just talking about even just a whipping or a beating. We're talking about skinning them, filleting them. And then most likely they're going to bleed out and die of this. So his response is basically, because you didn't give me bread and water, I'm going to torture you and fillet you till you die. Now that's messed up. 
And that's not an appropriate response. <laughs> they haven't even tried to kill him. They haven't even killed his brothers and sisters. They haven't done anything but just, I'm not going to give you a cup of water. And that's his, his response. It's brutal. It's nasty. It's Canaanite. And it's over-exaggerated and not justice. So he went up from there to Peniel, which is another Israelite town. And he made the same request to the men of Peniel and responded the same way to the men of Sakah. He also threatened the men of Peniel, warning, when I return victoriously, I will tear down this tower on you. So he goes to them and they say the same thing. We're not giving you anything. So he says, fine. When I come back, I'm going to lock you in this tower and I'm going to tear it down on top of you and bury you alive. This is not appropriate. What happened to the guy who was hiding in a wine press who was scared to do anything? What even happened to the person who was flattering the Ephraimites just like a few days ago in order to get what he wants? Something's changing in Gideon. And he's going from a coward who drug his feet day after week after week after week after week with God, constantly testing him, scared out of his mind. And now he doesn't seem to have any compassion here. There's two stories going on here. The first story is Gideon's encounter with his own people as they're chasing the enemy. The other one is when he actually catches the enemy and what he does with them. So in verse 10 it says, Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their armies. And there were about 15,000 survivors from the army of the eastern peoples. And 120,000 sword-wielding soldiers have been killed. Most likely, once again, you should see this thousands as regiments. Gideon went up the road of the nomads east of Nabal and Jagabath and ambushed the surprise and surprised the army. When Zeba and Zalmunna ran away, Gideon chased them and captured the true two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. He had surprised their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle of the pass at Harris, and he captured a young man from Sakath and interrogated him. And the young man wrote down for him the names of Sakath's officials and the city leaders and 77 men in all. He approached the men of Sakath and said, Look what I have, Zeba and Zalmunna. You insulted me, saying, You have not overpowered Zeba and Zalmunna. So why should we give you bread and the exhausted men? So he captures them, and he's successful. But what should he be doing to them immediately? Killing them. Instead, he's dragging them along as prisoners because he's going to teach the people of Sakath and Peniel a lesson. He sees the leaders of the city along with some of the desert thorns and briars, and he then threshed the men of Sakath with them. And he also tore down the tower of Peniel and executed the city's men. So he basically comes back with Zeba and Zalmunna and rubs it in their face and says, here they are. You didn't trust me. You didn't back me. Now you're going to suffer. I can understand somebody being really angry and heated and they say something really stupid like, I'm going to kill you when I come back or I'm going to torture you when I come back. I mean, I still think there's something wrong with you if you're saying that, but I can kind of understand the heat of the motions, exhausted. I mean, we all know what you're like when people get hangry. But when he actually comes back and to actually physically follow through with taking thorns and repeatedly threshing and taking thorns down somebody's back to skin them alive, what in the world is going on with him? He literally killed his own people because they did not give him food. As a judge, what is he supposed to do? 
deliver his people from the hands of the enemy. Has he delivered them? Militarily, but what is he doing now? Did the Midianites ever do this? The Midianites came in and killed them, but the narrator never told us about torturing and skinning people alive. Is he any different than the enemy and what they've been doing to Israel for the last seven years? No. And the reality is that even though Gideon has delivered them from their enemy in a military technical sense, he has become no different than the enemy that they were being oppressed by. He is now doing the same thing to them, which means he hasn't technically delivered them. This is kind of like when the, I forget who it was, but there was a dictator over Cuba, and he was oppressing the people and enslaving them. And we backed Fidel Castro to put him out of power because Fidel Castro was starting a rebellion for the people, to free the people, so the people could have their own freedom. And then once he gained power, he ended up becoming exactly the same thing. Same thing with Saddam Hussein. There's a dictator in power. We supported him back Saddam Hussein in order to deliver them and back them, and then he ends up doing the same thing. And then we got rid of him with Osama bin Laden, and they did the same thing. We got rid of him with ISIS, and then they did the same thing. There seems to be this pattern of people who are oppressed for a long period of time that when they finally get rid of the oppressor, they start turning around and doing the same thing. And how do you take a coward who is afraid and all the time, and he turns into this sadistic person. Now, I don't know exactly what the answer is here, but I think one of the best cases I've seen in American history is Columbine. Columbine was two boys. They were outcasts. They were socially awkward. They were antisocial. They didn't have friends. And every single day they came to school, they were mocked. They were ridiculed, they were bullied, and they were ostracized and marginalized. And day after day after day after day, they were the cowards. They were the oppressed. They were, I mean, Gideon said, I'm the least of all these people. And he's afraid and he's hiding. For seven years, he's being oppressed by the enemy and probably doesn't have much respect from the people in his town. Press. And then eventually what happens, they couldn't take it anymore. And so they were listening to bands like Ramstein and KMFD and Marilyn Manson, who all had songs about killing your classmates. And they were playing violent video games. And one day they just couldn't take it anymore. And that bitterness outlashed. And they went into their schools and they gunned down their classmates. And they went from the cowardly, oppressed, marginalized people to the oppressors. And so I think between the dictators that we've seen in our current American surrounding history and then examples of school shootings where they're just the first of many cases where that's happened, I think that you can see that when you take somebody like this who's marginalized and oppressed and all of a sudden they gain power, something happens in people. Not everybody, because there's lots of people out there who've gone through the same thing and they don't turn around. They end up becoming passionate and kind. But there seems to be two routes you can go where you actually become compassionate to those who are also oppressed, or something snaps and you become the oppressor yourself. And Gideon is now no different and maybe even worse than the very people that he just conquered. And this is not, and this is why God refuses to call him a judge and deliver. Even though technically and politically and militarily and historically he was, In a biblical, godly definition of a spiritual deliverer, God refuses to call him this. 
And I think this is important to understand because, like I said, with all these judges, we're seeing little by little by little by little with each judge compromising more and more and more. Yet the reason Gideon gets more attention in this book is because with Gideon, we see the compromising happen throughout his entire life. He's not just one generation a little bit closer to moral compromise. He is gone from pretty decent to totally compromised in his own lifetime. And so the warning is not only does this happen on a grand scale, generation by generation by generation, that this also can happen just in our own lifetime, of the people that we know or in our own lives. Then he goes to Zeba and Zalmunna in verse 18, and he, descri- he said, Describe for me the men you killed in Tabor. They said that they were like you. Each one looked like a king's son. Now this is interesting. Because Zeba and Zalmunna now look at this man and they see the heirs of a king. So something has changed in the demeanor of Gideon that they don't see the coward hiding in the wine press. They see the aura and the demeanor of a king-like mentality. So they said they were just king, just like sons of king and mother. I swear as surely as Yahweh is a lie, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Now, that's an interesting statement. Now, most likely they don't mean your biological brothers. Most likely they mean your brothers as in your countrymen. And Gideon says, if you had not killed my fellow Israelites, I would not kill you. Now, what's the problem with that? Yeah, Yahweh told him to kill him. (laughs) So he's basically, he's not literally saying this, but inadvertent, indirect kind of way, he's basically saying, I was going to disobey God and not kill you, but because you killed my brothers and offended me, now I'm going to kill you. Notice that his killing of Zeba and Zalmunna has more to do with vengeance than it actually does with obedience to God. Just, and then this is important. Just because you're doing the physical actions of what God commanded you doesn't mean that's true heart obedience. There's lots of people who kick their feet in dirt and do what they're supposed to do. But that doesn't mean that they're obedient. He ordered Jether, his firstborn son, come on, kill them. But Jether was too afraid to draw his own sword because he was still young. So he turns to his son and says, now you kill him. Now one of two things are happening here. He's either trying to make a man out of his son, which is a jack-up definition of making your son a man, or he's trying to humiliate Zeba and Zalmunna by having a boy kill them. Either way, it's not good. It's not good. But Jether was too afraid because he was still young. Zeba and Zalmunna said to Gideon, Come on, you strike us, for a man is judged by his own strength. So Gideon killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent-shaped ornaments which were around their necks of the camels. Which would you rather have done to you? If you had to die, and there was no choice about it, and you're going to be executed. Would you rather have somebody skin you alive or run you through through with a sword? Sword, yeah. That's instant death. It's going to be painful, but it's pretty instantaneous. Gideon goes to his own people who he was supposed to deliver, and he skins them alive for not giving him bread. Yet he goes to the enemy who's supposed to be executed according to the command of God, who's oppressed them and killed them and stolen from them for the last seven years, and he gives them a merciful death. And the only reason he killed them 
was because they killed some of his countrymen. Not because God actually commanded it. Or not even because of the evils that they've committed. This is the mentality in the heart of Gideon. This is why Gideon is not a godly man. Can you say that he has demonstrated faith in his life and God reward that and use that? Yes. And the author of Hebrews says the same thing. But can you say that he's a godly man that should be put in the hall of faith? No. Now, yes, I understand that he's a product of his culture and all that kind of stuff, but there's no excuse to that because the whole point of God giving the people the law and putting them in a nation where they're supposed to be separate from the surrounding nations with a law was that they were supposed to be a people that were unique and different called holy. And they were supposed to not be a part of the culture. They were called to be holy, and they were given everything they needed to be holy. And Gideon is not acting in that way. And there are some scholars that argue that what he's doing is okay because, yes, in some ways it's wrong from our definition post-Christ, but he is a product of the culture, and how would he know better? It's called the law. It's called the tabernacle. It's called the sacrificial system. It's called being put up in a land and being called to be holy. He is supposed to be countercultural, and he is without excuse. And so he is more merciful to the enemy than he is his own people. And in this way, Gideon does not actually deliver his people. But we're not done. In verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have delivered us from the Midian's power. Oh, never mind that we just forgot about what you did to our own people, you dictator. (laughs) Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. Yahweh will rule over you. At first you might think, yay, Gideon, good theology. But the problem is, the narrator's already hinted at, can you really trust this guy? Because Zeb and Zalmunna have already pointed out that he has the aura and the demeanor of a king. And the fact that he's acting like a dictator who's oppressing his own people, one wonders what he's really saying here. But now here's the other thing. Did you notice that when he was talking about the, to Ephraimites and stuff, he was using the name God, Elohim. And all of a sudden now he's using the name Yahweh, yet at the same time he doesn't seem to have any understanding of the character of Yahweh as he's trying to represent him. And we're going into a new shift where before the narrator is showing you that when somebody uses the name Yahweh, that's the narrator's way of saying that they're, 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 in, they're in alignment with the image of God and they're acting in the way that they should or they're at least acknowledging Yahweh as their king. But we're going to be entering into a new time period where now Israel has the lingo of Yahweh, but they don't have the character. Because when we get to Jephthah, Jephthah is going to be using the name Yahweh all the time. And yet not once does he ever demonstrate any understanding of who Yahweh is. And this is kind of like people in our culture today who talk about Jesus and Yahweh and all kind of stuff. Or you got Oprah, and I love Oprah when she's like, I am a Christian and, and I believe in Jesus and I follow Jesus. But I believe that Jesus came to teach us how we're all gods ourselves. It's like, okay, Jesus, you got, Oprah, you got the lingo down. But there's obviously no understanding of God's character. We're going to enter into now where the jargon is a part of his language. He's had enough encounters with God, and he realizes that playing the God card is working for him. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to really reflect the character of God. 
So he says, no, Yahweh will be your king. And you're like, yeah, Gideon, I think. But Gideon continued, I would like to make one request. Each of you give me an earring from the plunder that you have taken. The Midianites had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said they were happy to give you earrings. So they spread out a garment and each one of them threw earrings from his plunder onto it. The total weight of the gold earrings he requested came to 1,700 gold shekels. This was in addition to the crescent-shaped ornaments and jewels and purple clothing worn by the Midianite kings and the necklaces on the camels. Gideon used all of this to make an ephod, which he put in his own hometown of Ophrah, and the Israelites prostituted themselves to it by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Gideon says, no, 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 no. Yahweh is going to be your king. I'm not going to be your king. But then he says, oh, but I have one request. I want you all to give me money right now. Now, what do you call that? Tax. tax. It's called a tax. Before I deal with the ephod thing, I'm going to skip that for just a brief moment and go to the next thing. In verse 28, it says, The Israelites humiliated Midian. The Midianites' fighting spirit was broken, and the land had rest for 40 years during Gideon's time. Then Jerud Baal, son of Joash, went home and settled down. And Gideon fathered 70 sons with his many wives. Now the only way you could ever afford to have that many wives and that many kids is if extremely wealthy, which means the taxation probably has not ended. And the only people who have that many wives are people who marry wives for the sake of making treaties with other nations now yes jacob had four wives and abraham like had three and we see this other places but that's different than having so many wives that you can have 70 kids that means the only time that you ever see that is with kings and kings would often marry and so basically if i want to make a treaty signing a piece of paper is one thing but anybody can break that so if I want to make a treaty with another person, is I would marry their daughter and they would marry my daughter. We would trade daughters. Then when they are my wife and we're having children, I am less likely to attack them when my daughter and my grandchildren are in their house. And that kind of is more of a guarantee of you honoring your treaty, which means that he's most likely making treaty. This is treaty language. Every other time that you see this, it's treaty language. Not only that, it says, his concubine lived with him in Shechem, also gave him a son who he named Abimelech. Abba means father, Melech means king. So he names his son, my father is king. So he literally names himself king through his son. It's an indirect way of doing it, which means he's probably also naming Abimelech to succeed him and whatever <coughs> he has. Then it says that he buried in the tomb of his father, Joash Ophrah. Now Gideon died and the Israelites again prostitute themselves. So all this language suggests that he views himself as a king-like figure. Now why in the world would he not want them to call him king, but he's acting like a king? So maybe he's too afraid to actually call himself a king because he fears God enough to at least do that, but not enough to skin his own people alive. <laughs> but at the same time, he wants all the privileges of being a king and none of the responsibility. If they call him king, then he has to do board meetings and, and handle court cases and all that kind of stuff. But if he's not king in name, then he can act like a king and get all the privileges. You know what that's called today in America? A celebrity. 
all the privileges and none of the responsibility and none of the accountability. That's what he's basically acting here. And you, it's, it's even further by the fact that he's collecting all that bling bling, the necklaces and the jewelry, just like celebrities flaunting like and stuff. And the camels, the Roll Roy, Royces. <laughs> Gideon has become arrogant and he's become corrupted by power. But not just that, it says that he takes the gold and he makes an ephod. The ephod is the vest that the priest wears, the high priest. There's two kinds of ephods. There's just an ephod that's like a linen ephod that a normal priest who just serves in the tabernacle can wear. But there's also the ephod, which has these gemstones representing the 12 tribes that only the high priest would wear. And what's significant about it is the the, the ephod also bears the Urim and the Thummim. And these were two stones that allowed them to talk to God and communicate. So he's taking a vest that represents the priest mediating between God and man so that you can have a relationship with God. And he makes a gold one. This is not supposed to be gold. Exodus clearly says that it's supposed to be a linen vest made of white and purple and blue thread with these gemstones on it. But he makes a gold one. And then they begin to bow down and worship it as a god. And it says that all of Israel prostitute themselves. And that's a very specific word that God uses. And the prophets are going to use this a lot. Because in God's opinion, idolatry is the same thing as adultery and prostitution. And a devotion, breaking your covenant kind of a way. They prostitute. And then notice it says that it became a snare to Gideon and his own family too which means getting his bow down and worshiping it as well. Now, here's the other thing that might be interesting. The question is, is he wearing it? We're not told specifically, but there is a possibility that he could be wearing it as well. Why make a gold vest and never wear it? That means that he's functioning like some kind of a priest, especially in the context of them bowing down and worshiping it. Now, I don't think he's wearing it in the sense that I think I'm a god, because that's a very foreign idea for the Israelites. And it's one thing for them to go off and worship other gods, but even the most corrupt kings that we see in the book of Kings, like Ahab and um, Jeroboam, they don't ever go as far as like the Babylonian kings and the Persian kings of thinking they're actually a god. But he he might be using the God chose me thing. If that is true, though, then that means he's functioning as king and priest simultaneously, which is forbidden by the law. And when Saul does that, God's going to pronounce the death sentence upon him. It's punishable by death to function both as king and priest. And not only that, he's not a Levite. So he's not even allowed to function as a priest in any kind of way. And let's just say he's not even functioning as a priest in any way. He's not allowed to make any kind of priestly garments or priestly functions or even ordain any kind of priestly thing in any kind of a way either. Gideon has gone from the coward in the caves who says, Who me? And now all of a sudden he's become an oppressive idolater. Now notice that at the beginning of the story, they were oppressed by the enemy. Now they're oppressed by Gideon. At the beginning of the story, Gideon and his family were worshiping Baal. 
and he tears down the altar, and now he has built a new one, a new altar. And not only that, he uses the same language as Aaron from the book of Exodus when he, in 32 when it says, Give me all your earrings. And just like the fact that they got all their jewelry and earrings from Egypt, because God said, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, and I'm going to give you all the wealth. And they were supposed to use that wealth to build a tabernacle to God. Who gave Gideon all this wealth and jewelry? God. And he uses it to build an ephod so they can bow down and worship. Where when Abraham got wealth from conquering the kings of the north, he turned around and he tied it to Melchizedek. And what we're seeing here is that Gideon is functioning just like Aaron. A leading them astray, oppressing the people. He has not functioned as a deliverer in any kind of way. And it says that he gave them peace, but it's a political peace. Because at the very moment that it says he gave them peace, it also says, but they prostituted themselves to the idol. And this is very important for you to understand. Gideon did not leave them better than what he found them. And our principal at our school, Buzz, one of the things I like what he says is, he specifically tells a lot of the guys in this in dating, like, I get that you may not stop dating, but if you are going to date somebody, when you break up with them, at least leave them better off than what you found them. Meaning that at least the breakup should be about God and taking care of them and doing the right thing and not just like tossing them to the side. And I think that's a good thing just in life in general. Do I leave you off better than what I found you? Or at least make an attempt. That's what it means to be the image of God, to be a blessing to the world, to expand the garden. So, and he doesn't. He doesn't. This is Gideon. Seriously misunderstood by a lot of people in the church. The only thing that we've really seen that Gideon did anything well was he at least tore down the altar, even though it wasn't completely the way that God wanted him to, and he at least showed up to battle, which was after lots of doubts and dragging his feet and questioning God. But other than that, Gideon is just a big hot mess. And I really think that like when you get to the second part, either I think a lot of people in the church get uncomfortable with it, or it's not as entertaining as broken jars and fleeces and stuff, but it's like, if you just finish the story, how did Gideon ever get a good reputation in our churches? And I don't mean like your specific churches, because I don't know what's going on, but I mean just like in the history of Sunday school lessons, so to speak. But this is the lesson. Here's the thing, and we've seen this. Even with our own pastoral and ministers and that kind of stuff, we've seen people who they start getting big churches and lots of followings and that kind of stuff, and the pride starts building up. One of the greatest examples is Jim Jones. And it's only a great example because he's the, well, the most well-documented. Jim Jones recorded and videotaped practically everything he did. And so he is the best example of seeing a gradual progression from a guy who genuinely wanted to help somebody to someone who was so good at helping people, it started going to his head and he started becoming arrogant and prideful and then even godlike in his mentality. And the re- we're all in danger of this. We're all in danger of this. We, we all struggle with that pride. We all struggle with that arrogance, or I could do it better than them, or why didn't they have this? And we all got our opinions on things. 
even if you do struggle with low self-esteem and that kind of stuff, you still got the pride. I always find humans so interesting how we can like beat ourselves up and think lowly of ourselves. At the same time, we got like pride and arrogance and, and it's like we, we are so contradictory that we struggle with both pride and low self-esteem at the exact same time. And a lot of times we like to play the humility card and like, oh yeah, but I beat myself up all the time. Yeah, but you also do this stuff over here. And we need, this is a warning to us. This is a warning to us especially when you start becoming prominent and you start becoming successful. And there's a warning here that you can end up like a Gideon. And here's the other thing you must understand. And I think American Christians are really bad at admitting this. The minute you think, oh, that could never happen to me, it can. I think we have this idea that because we're going to church, at least we're not like him or her in America or I've never struggled with that thought or that thing or I try so hard to, and I go to church we fooled ourselves into our false sense of righteousness and the more and more you think that you're not a sinner the less and less you'll depend on God and the more and more you think that you're not a sinner the less and less you'll put up boundaries and protections and fences and accountability for yourself because when you think, oh, I could never, then you don't do things that are necessary to prevent you from crossing that line. And next thing you know, you're pushed across. And I don't mean you're going to be crossed in every line, but some line you will if you have that kind of a mentality. And when you really fully realize how evil your heart is and how anybody placed in the right situation, especially in the right amount of time period, we're all capable of anything. You put anybody in a bad situation day after day after day after day, and I'm not saying you're guaranteed to do the wrong thing, but we're all capable of doing the wrong thing. And only when you realize that, then do you do everything in your power to prevent yourself from becoming that. And this is why Jesus said those who have loved or forgiven of much love much. And I used to think like the person who was like a sex addict and an alcoholic and a murderer is the one who like appreciates God more because they had the amazing testimony. But then I realized that what Jesus really meant by that was not that I can list out this laundry list of horrible, gruesome sins that God has freed me from, is that when I realized in my heart I was no different than the murderous, alcoholic, sex addict. And when I finally realized that, then I love much because I realized how much I need Christ. And we need to see these warnings in Gideon. Now, the other thing that this does is when you realize that you are capable of this, it allows you to have more compassion for people who are struggling with this. When you realize that nobody really wakes up and says, I want to be a murderer. That you realize that it's a lot of it is not okay, but understandable given where they come from. Then it allows you to also to have the heart of Christ who can look at the woman caught in an affair and say, I love you. The woman at the well. And he says, I love you. Or us. I'll die on the cross. And so see the warning here. But the other thing you need to understand is we need to be watching our leaders. And whatever form they take. We need to be watching our neighbors. We need to be watching our, our partners. We need to be watching our leaders. And I don't mean any watching them like 1984, kind of call, ratting them out to Big Brother kind of a sense, but that I so desperately love you, I can't bear to watch you go down this path watching you. 
Because I think a lot of times we saw a lot of warning signs, but we were too afraid that if I said something to them, then I would lose their friendship. And one of the greatest statements I ever heard about in this kind of area was one of my friends talking about one of his other friends that was going down the wrong... We, all three of us were friends. And this one of our friends was going down the wrong path. And we were talking about what to do. And this guy, as we were talking about this other guy, he basically says, I love him too much to let him go down this path. In fact, I love him more than I love him liking me and being my friend. And I'm willing to risk my friendship for the sake of him not going down this path. And I was like, wow. <laughs> like, I wish I had said that. <laughs> but that, that's true love. That's true love. And this is the warning to us. How did he wind up in Hebrews 11? I really think Hebrews 11 is just the amazing things that God can do with you when you do demonstrate faith in the right thing. And so the whole point of Hebrews is Christ is superior to this, Christ is superior to this, Christ is superior to this. And so when he goes on, he says, so therefore, if Christ is the most ultimate, powerful, sovereign thing in the entire universe, that what makes amazing things is not how great you are, but that when you trust in how great he is, God can pull off amazing things. And he'll use this. And I really think the point is not that Gideon is a godly man, but that at a few moments in his life, he really did trust God. Even though he didn't do 100% perfectly, still getting up and going out and tearing down an altar, knowing that it's the death penalty for people who tear down the altars, and there's a chance he can get caught, and he's taking the word over a a God that just spoke to him for the first time ever in the middle of nowhere in this day, and he's going to go out and trust that he's going to be, that's still faith. And God was able to do things with it. And he was able to do amazing things. And yes, he drug his feet and he questioned God and he doubted him and he threw out the fleece. And he, but he still showed up and said, with 300 men, I think we can win this. If he didn't think that, he would have never showed up. And God did an amazing victory with that. And so I think what God is saying is, why was he able to do that? Not because Gideon was so amazing and finally gathered together an incredible plan to defeat the enemy, but because he trusted in God and God defeated the enemy. And God can do amazing things when we demonstrate faith. And, and that's the testament, is that it's not... And, this is, and that goes along with when Jesus says, with faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. He doesn't say your faith has to be 100% perfect and totally 100% there. He just says, even if you just give a little bit of faith, God can do amazing things with that. Because if anything, this Bible is not a testimony to great men and women of God. It's a testimony to the great Yahweh that we serve and the amazing things he can do. And what God is saying is if God was able to do these things through the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrificial system, imagine what he can do through his own son which is exactly how Hebrews begins. Long ago, he spoke through visions and dreams and prophets, but today he speaks through his son. And that's the main point, that when Christ becomes the object of your faith, then God can do amazing things, including grow your faith beyond the size of a mustard seed.
So verse 33, it says, Gideon died, and Israel again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They made Baal Bereth their God. The Israelites did not remain true to Yahweh their God, who had delivered them from the enemies, who had lived among them. And they did not treat the family of Jeru Baal, that is Gideon, fairly, or return for him all the good that he had done for Israel. 